We're reading from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, sorry, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then from James reading from chapter 4, verse 13 to 5, verse 12. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Thank you, Victoria. Let me add my welcome to Chalmers this morning, whether you're in the building or watching online. We're very glad you're with us. And I just need to take a moment to to wipe down the lectern as part of our protocols. While I'm doing that, if you can have that passage open in front of you in James and ask yourself, who is James addressing? Who is James speaking to this morning?
Well, we'll be thinking about the answer to that questions, question amongst others, but let me lead us in prayer before we turn to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray now that by your spirit, you would speak to our hearts. Please open our ears, help us to concentrate, help us to not just hear your word, but to do it, to put it into practice, and help me to say nothing that distracts from or takes away from what you're saying here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, who is James speaking to? What's he speaking about? He's speaking to rich people about wealth. I wonder if you noticed that money is our topic today. And we might think, well, hang on, we're in, a, we're in a global pandemic. Should we really be talking about kind of riches and wealth? Actually, wealth is still big news. I don't know if you've noticed that, even at the moment. Uh, this weekend, actually, there were headlines that Apple is about to become a $2 trillion valued company, the first one. Tim Cook, its CEO, recently joined the Billionaires Club. There he's going to meet Mark Zuckerberg, worth an estimated 76 billion pounds. That's a lot. Back in July, the BBC News website had an article about Jeff Bezos, the the founding owner of Amazon, saying that his wealth was now estimated to be $171 billion, growing massively because he's making tens of billions during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's a lot. And since then, there's been two more months of growth of online delivery. So while some folks, maybe most, a number of folks have real fears for the future financially, there are certain individuals in certain sectors where business is booming. There's huge money to be made at the moment, faster than ever. And I want to begin this morning by asking us, what's our reaction when we come across those kind of stories of wealthy people? How do you feel? How did you feel just then? What goes through the mind? Is it kind of awe, wonder? Wow, how do they manage it? Was it maybe a flash of envy, jealousy, wistfulness? If, if only I'd managed to jump on one of those skyrocketing stocks like Apple before the iPhone or, or got into a booming property bubble, maybe Morningside 50 years ago <laughs> or whenever it was cheap or, or one of those industries with huge demand now. Apparently cardboard recycling has, has become big business. Um, if only I had been there, there's such wealth to be made. And the reality is, whether you're a student or uh, just on a single income or a family or a pensioner, actually, surely life would be more simple if there was a bit more money to go round, if the finances weren't tight or uncertain looking forwards. If we did have so much money, we didn't have to double-check what we're spending. Well, today we're in our penultimate passage in James's letter, and he's returning to this topic of how we think about money and how we think about rich people. He's doing that because he knows that how a Christian thinks about money is one of the key areas of difference between someone who lives with God's perspective and someone who lives with the world's perspective. It means this is actually one of the key battlegrounds when it comes to double-mindedness in the Christian life, which is what all of James is about. Throughout the book, we've seen him, if you just join us, welcome, we've seen him uh, kind of challenging these Christians not to live with one foot in the boat with Jesus and the other foot on the bank, still kind of clinging on to to this world and its values. That kind of split personality Christianity, that kind of two-faced spirituality. One thing on a Sunday, different person all through the week. 
James last week actually described it at the start of chapter 4 as spiritual adultery. If you've got your own Bible or Bible on a phone, um, feel free to get it out while I refer to a couple of bits of the book to to catch us up. Chapter 4, verse 4, James said this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's quite a stark diagnosis, wasn't it? Dr. James says, you are two-timing Jesus. You've got this disease of double-mindedness. And if you want to see whether you've got it or not, well, last week he said, let me see your tongue. What comes out of your mouth? What's your speech like? And if it's the case that we're praising God one moment with our mouths, not when we're in the building, but elsewhere, praising God one moment with our mouths, and the next moment slandering people that God has made, well, then that just shows our kind of two-faced speech shows our two-faced hearts, our our divided hearts, our adulterous hearts. And now he's going to say it's the same with money. We're at risk of two-timing Jesus with wealth. Jesus himself warned about this. That's why we had the reading from Matthew. Uh, He said you can't serve two masters. You can't have two things that are ultimate in your life, the kind of final bottom line, the thing that calls the shots. You can't do both at once, God and money. Let me just say, if you are a student and this is your kind of first church Sunday in Edinburgh, you are really welcome. Um, And you may be thinking, oh no, I haven't got any money, so what's the relevance of this to me? This isn't a great topic for my first Sunday. But actually, I think in God's kindness, this issue of split personality Christianity is hugely relevant for for student life. This may be exactly the reminder you need ahead of a freshers week. Who's going to be number one this year? Are you going to attempt the spiritual splits? Kind of one foot in the boat with Jesus, one foot trying to cling to the the self-centered world, the the now-centered wisdom of the world. It's not only miserable trying to straddle those things, it it ends badly. Are we going to be one thing when we're in church on Sunday and a whole different person during the week? But the specific area here is wealth. And James has said a lot about wealth already. So let me give us a couple of reminders of what he's said before. Just like with the tongues, it's a key diagnostic of where our hearts are at. Um, So far, he's addressed both rich and poor divisions inside the church and how we think about rich and poor people outside the church. So chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother, so a Christian, brother or sister, boast in his exaltation and the rich brother or sister in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Chapter 1, verse 9, that was a godly perspective on the differences between us in church. It seemed like in in the original churches he was writing to, there were differences of wealth. Looks like the majority were poor, struggling to make ends meet, with with a small number of Christians being quite rich. And those differences were causing disunity, envy, greed, covetousness. To be honest, I think in our context, here in the UK, here in Edinburgh, here in South Edinburgh, here in Chalmers, I think the balance is probably the other way around. The majority of us, on whether a global scale or historical scale, the majority of us are extraordinarily wealthy as our living standards compared to most human beings who've ever lived. 
But actually, either way around, James says to us, remember, that's not what lasts, your financial status. Look at wealth as temporary in light of eternity. The worldly or double-minded Christian will forget that it's passing and make it the be-all and end-all. And we'll see more of that when we get into our passage in just a moment. But secondly, chapter 2, James talks about how we view uh, rich and poor people out there, people who aren't Christians, maybe who, who visit the church or we come into contact with. Again, if you've got a Bible on your phone, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, where he said, A double-minded Christian will show favoritism. My, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to, to the, the well-clothed man and say, oh, you sit here, come down the front, and then the poor person, you say, oh, sorry, we're full for this week. Well, you've made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts, says James. So, as we think about our own differences of wealth, as we look out on society's differences, the rich and poor in wider society, don't have this uh, double-minded perspective. Or in other words, don't spend your time gazing in wonder or envy at Bezos' billions or Zuckerberg's zillions. And that brings us to chapter four, our passage today. And in lots of ways, this is repeating those themes more starkly. You may have picked up the language as being pretty strong. He's been saying that they're committing adultery with Jesus and wealth, two-timing Jesus, and now he's going to try and wake us up with some kind of shock treatment. We've already seen that this kind of Attitude to wealth is dangerous. We've seen it's dangerous for church unity. That was chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Reality is, if I care more about myself than other people, more about money and power than other people, well, then I will tread on other people to get what I want, to look after number one. And that even happens inside the church when I prioritize the people who might make me go upwards in life. It's bad for church unity. It's bad for our prayer lives. We've already heard that. Dangerous for that. Chapter four, verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We've already seen it's dangerous, but in our passage now, it's dangerous eternally. That is, God takes spiritual adultery really seriously. Let's dive in. Um, If you've got a a service sheet, you'll see we've got three points. We're not actually going to do point three. I'm going to leave that for next week, so I think it's part of the conclusion, verse 12. Uh, So we've got two points, and we're going to spend much longer in the first point. So if you're really panicking uh, at how long that first point takes, don't. don't. The second one's much shorter. Um, Let's head into point one. Wealthy people, be warned. I think it's pretty obvious that 4 verse 13, that paragraph, and 5 verse 1, that little paragraph, are a pair. They both start with, come now, uh, you who say. Notice that the person he's talking to, this is the answer if you were thinking about earlier, in both paragraphs he's speaking to rich people. 5 verse 1, come now, you rich. 4 verse 13, 
Um, come now, you who uh, say today or tomorrow we'll go here, we'll go to such a town, we'll spend a year there, we'll trade, we'll make a profit. These are people who have the wealth to travel, to trade, to look for a profit. What's less clear is, so it's definitely rich people, it's less clear whether it's rich people in here, in the church, or rich people out there. People running their business lives out there with no acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Maybe when we read the first paragraph, we think, oh yeah, I think maybe that's me sometimes. I don't really remember to factor in God when I'm making plans. But then the chapter 5 paragraph, 5.1 to to verse 6, suddenly sounds pretty scary. It's shocking warnings of judgment. And by verse 6, it's clear that it's people out there, if you like. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, so he does not resist you. And then he turns in verse 7 to speak to Christians. So then who's this for? Is it for us or for Tim Cook or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or the wealthy residents around Edinburgh? The answer is both, genuinely both. It's both because this is a direct warning to the self-assured wealthy outside the church whether they're in self-confident planning mode or self-indulgent prosperity mode. Actually, every human being needs to know that they are on a collision course with God, their maker. The accumulation of wealth at the expense of others means you're in a collision course with his justice. So if anyone has happened upon this YouTube stream, this does mean you. But remember... The problem with the Christians here is that too much of the world's thinking is is seeping into their hearts. There's too much earthly wisdom going on in their mentality. And so it is shock treatment for us too to not go anywhere near this kind of rich, self-centered lifestyle. Let's get into the shocks. I think the first shocking warning is a shock because it uses words like proud or arrogant or evil or sin to describe something that is completely normal in our culture. Sometimes completely normal in our Christian culture. Just look at it, verse 13. What's the crime here? Well, it just seemingly looks like just, just making good plans. Verse 13. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I mean, aren't we doing this kind of stuff all the time? In fact, don't the Proverbs say it's good to be like an ant and work hard and think ahead and store up and plan prudently? Doesn't 1 Timothy say we need to provide for our relatives if we're a Christian, our families and older relatives? Yes, it does. Planning's not the problem. But when we do it with total self-confidence and zero God-reliance, that's a problem. If we plan like we are immortal and God is irrelevant, that's a problem. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We're not immortal. We're fleeting. At the moment on the Pentland Hills, uh, the bottom of the road, you get this kind of early morning mist that by lunchtime is gone. 
That's what our lives are like. It's good to remember it. In lots of ways, a global pandemic with a deadly disease is reminding us of that, I think. We can make wonderful plans, but it's entirely possible we won't be there to see them. James says, not just remember our own fleeting existence, also remember God's overarching sovereignty. Because the fact is, the future isn't in our hands, but it is in God's hands. Think at the moment, technology and, and travel and the kind of instant global news and communication we have, it can kind of kid us into thinking we are actually masters of, of our destiny. I can kind of know everything all at once and, and change it all. But the reality is, if God says stop, everything stops. And COVID has run that home. I think, I think we'd live so many years in peacetime in the West with prosperity and kind of regularity. I think we were starting to fool ourselves that we had tomorrow under control. I mean, sure, catastrophic weather events occasionally happened, you know, turned someone's life upside down, a raging bushfire or a flood through the living room, plans in tatters. But that was always somewhere else. Doesn't happen in Edinburgh. But this tiny novel coronavirus has come to Edinburgh. It does shut it all down. This week, it was birthday parties. If you planned one for more than six, it's cancelled overnight. Only two households. All year, it's been business planning. I mean, businesses which at the turn of the year would have had a really robust profit plan, a, a kind of a, a clear way they were going to make money by year end, and suddenly the legs are kicked out beneath them. Same with diary planning. I, I look back actually this week to the 16th of March, which is when our Scottish lockdown was announced. That week, I had all sorts of things planned. Every single night, I had to cancel something or it, it no longer be face-to-face. And the question James would have for us was, Did that kind of catch us by complete surprise? Or actually, do we live with a mindset of God is in control? He'll have the say. He can rip up our plans. As we unlock and begin to get bits of freedom, I know some are looking about, should we buy a house? Where should we buy it? Others are are working on business deals. Others are planning the social diary once again. Are we living in awareness Not just government guidance might change next week, but God might overrule. Actually, it's his say whether our plans happen. To put it in a nutshell, do we plan like practical atheists? It can even happen in church life as well as business. One of the features I noticed when I first joined Chalmers, and in lots of ways this is a strength, but I noticed how much kind of strategic thinking and careful planning went on. That's a good thing. We're working hard um, to, to seek first the kingdom of Jesus in Scotland and beyond. And we're trying to be wise and steward our resources. But actually, in all those plans and projects and training schemes, do we ever drift into making the plans as if we were God? Or are we continually recognizing that we're not? That they could all be ripped up tomorrow, that God might have a better idea. I'll give you an example of this. I, I remember a discussion with the elders when we were thinking about the Redeemer church plant, uh, which went uh, in January. We were discussing where it would be, which community, what kind of building it might meet in, how it would be resourced. And like with most things, um, it was carefully researched and planned. And then one of the elders helpfully pointed out that it was entirely up to the Lord when and where and even whether that church actually started or not. He could close the door. 
And the elder called us, quite rightly, to pray. So do we plan like practical atheists, whether at work or in church? Do we kid ourselves we're immortal? Are we self-confident or trusting God's sovereignty? And if you want to check, have a look at the health of our prayer lives. How's my personal prayer life when I make plans? How's our church prayer life as we make plans for the gospel? That notice about the prayer meeting this Tuesday night on Zoom, actually in lots of ways it is a kind of key diagnostic of are we a church that believes James? We need to depend on the Lord for all we're doing. And it is serious. Just look at verse 15, the strength of the language. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, verse 16, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Let me clarify what we are supposed to do here. I don't think this is just talking about always including a specific phrase, like a kind of verbal tick, you know, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, every time I say something. Nor is it saying if you, if you change your email footer to kind of include DV, God willing, that that will cover you. <laughs> As if this is saying kind of um, uh, there's some kind of heavenly slot machine that if you just put the right words in, then everything's fine. No, I think a kind of automated, ritualistic approach to this is just another way of ignoring God and putting myself in control. So it's talking not just about a particular phrase, but about our attitudes, genuine humility, genuine dependence, genuine awareness that tomorrow is beyond me, beyond my ken, beyond my power. It belongs to God. It's not just a stock phrase. But that said, and this is actually new to me this week, working on James again, I think speaking does matter here. Just notice something with me. Look at verse 17 and have a think. Why is it there? What's it doing there? Verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. What is the right thing to do that he's been talking about? Well, he said, verse 15, explicitly, the right thing to do is, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. And then verse 17, straight off the back, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. So the attitude matters. It's not just a phrase to parrot out mindlessly. I think James is saying we should actually be speaking about God's sovereignty. Here's the question then. Why would a Christian not do this? Why would a Christian who believes God is sovereign not speak about God's will? Well, welcome to the world of the double-minded Christian. See, they talk a good game on Sundays or with the family, happy to mention Jesus and God's sovereignty in a small group Bible study. But if you meet them in the office or in a supervision, in a classroom, they're, they're just like the world. At the student freshers' party, although I think parties are banned, but maybe a party with one other person, they wouldn't look or sound any different, even though they were here visiting Chalmers with their parents on the first Sunday. Partly because if we did start talking like this in the office, we'd sound pretty weird, wouldn't we? If we kept mentioning that our business plans and work plans and diary planning was subject to God's overrule, that if God willing, I'll be there. How would that go down at the partners meeting or the Zoom call or the board meeting? Pretty odd to mention that plans are contingent on God being willing. 
But this is exactly the point. Christians are supposed to be different. God's wisdom is different from earthly wisdom. Radically different. We're not supposed to be living with the world's self-centered, now-centered wisdom, but consistently with God's wisdom, which doesn't put me in the center of the universe, but acknowledges he's already there. And it may be, as we come to the Lord's table and have communion later, it may be that for some of us, we need to actually repent on this front. If we have been living a split life, if me at school or me with my friends or me at work is a very different me, my words are very different compared to me on Sunday. That's the first warning to the rich, self-confident planners. The second one is even starker. We'll, We'll speed up at this point. It's even starker. The target is self-indulgent, self-indulgent profiteers. And it is a kind of nightmarish imagery. We, we read um, Jesus, James's brother, warning us not to store up treasures on earth because moth and rust destroy them. Um, actually, I have first-hand experience of both of those categories. I've got a little speaker I got for my birthday quite a while ago. It's now rusting. Sad. I think I kept it in the, the kitchen too long. And I've got some clothes with moth holes. Um, so I've experienced that, but this experience is a, like a nightmarish version of it, as James looks forward to final judgment, not just this world. Verse 3, even their gold is corroding. And notice, the more wealth the rich person is sitting on, the, the, the bigger the bank account, the bigger the stockpile of shares, the more danger they're in. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The point is, you've, you've piled up so much for yourself, it's, it's just all sitting there corroding. And on that final day, that net worth will be evidence against you. Evidence that in this final period of history before Jesus comes back, you've laid up treasure in the last days. I mean, it is, it's a shocking indictment, and it's so counter counterintuitive, counter how we think about really rich people. Remember those stories at the start. We are tempted to be impressed or even envious of the great fortunes. Really, we should be concerned for their internal welfare. Worried for them that if someone dies unforgiven, that is not knowing Jesus as their saviour, and they're sitting on a massive pile of cash, that very fortune will be evidence against them, evidence of their self-centered living, their self-indulgence. And the nightmare worsens as we read on verse 4. There are noises coming from the vault or the kind of hidden safe behind the expensive painting. It's squealing, in fact, it's screaming, that the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I'm not making a specific comment about any of the people I've mentioned, but so many people in this world are rich at the expense of others, even through the abuse of others. We've recently been seeing a kind of moral outrage at the fortunes of slave owners being made on other people's backs. Now, the response of mob justice is not the right one, but the indignation, morally, I think is appropriate. And I'm not sure humanity in the age of global multinationals is a whole lot better. 
I think our exploitation just looks a bit different and often happens on a different continent, so we're not really aware. Even much closer to home, we're in that stage now where as furlough comes to an end, that the employment um, kind of uh, axe begins to be wielded. Will it be CEOs and wealthy business owners, the senior managers, the partners, will it be they who absorb the greater costs? Or actually, will it be those who've served faithfully through the years, but maybe not in the most profitable area? May they be the ones who get turfed out to protect the richest. Certainly any of us who are wealthy and powerful enough to be involved in managing others, we should remember the Lord holds us accountable for how we make our money and how we treat those who work for us. Again, James' language is so stark, isn't it? Look at it. You've fattened your hearts in day of slaughter. There's a massive warning to the wealthy. And it should kind of sober us up as Christians Not to long to climb right to the top of the greasy pole ourselves, whoever we have to stand on. Definitely not to risk cutting corners with other people to make a quick buck or a greater profit. But also on the flip side, not to despair when we receive such treatment. When we're on the receiving end of rough justice. Even when we find ourselves facing trials of various kinds like tight finances or poor treatment from employers or workplaces, maybe the trial of being put out of work for no fault of our own. Verse 7 goes on to say, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Verse 8, Establish your hearts. And this is our closing point. Christians, keep persevering steadfastly through trials. This is where the book of James began. It's where he's going to come into land. And again, just with the rich, the the motivation theologically is the end. Remembering eternity. Jesus is coming back. He's just around the corner. Just listen. I'll read it. Verse 7. Just listen out how many times we get told. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Like we're seeing in Revelation in the evenings at the moment. Jesus will come back to end this world. And so Christians, hold on in there. Let's keep enduring the struggles, the frustrations, even the injustice and the suffering that comes in this life. If you want to know what that actually looks like in practice, James says, learn from the farmer, or the prophets, or Job. The farmer, verse 7, a model of patience, holding out until the necessary time has elapsed, knowing that the, the fruit he awaits is so precious, it's worth sticking it out until the rains come. He holds out to the end. What about the prophets? Well, so many of them led pretty tough lives. Interesting question, do I aspire to be uh, Jeremiah or Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos or Isaiah? Job himself. This is an interesting one because he actually had a lot of prosperity and then it all got taken away overnight almost. And it was so inexplicable from his perspective, so painful, so unfair, so unwarranted because he'd kept his genuine allegiance to the living God. And it may be in coming months, in the struggles economically in this country, that there will be Christians in that situation. 
Lord, I've kept faithful. How has it suddenly got so hard? In the end, Job was greatly blessed and it did experience the compassion and mercy of God, but he had to stick it out. And he wasn't double-minded because he went to God with his questions, his prayers. See, the Christian life for so many through Scripture, it's a, it's a case of just trusting God through thick and thin with the emphasis on the thin. Trials are not an exception. They're the normal context we live in. The context, actually, where we can grow to long for Jesus' return more and more. We can grow more wholehearted, more single-minded, more devoted to the Lord Less a foot in either camp. And so as we close, striking, isn't it? The Christian shouldn't be that confident about tomorrow. I don't actually know what's going to happen. I've got plans, but it's up to the Lord. But the Christian should be absolutely confident about the final day. Jesus is coming back to get us. It's the complete opposite of a rich non-believer. Unfounded, total confidence about tomorrow. I'm sure I'll make a profit this year. And unfounded, total confidence often that Jesus isn't coming back. I don't need to worry. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word in James. We admit that often our hearts are pulled in two directions. And we pray you would grant us the humility to trust in you and not ourselves. To recognize our frailty and lean on you. And to live each day in light of Jesus' return. And we pray that for your glory and our good. Amen.